Mohicans lived here until 1783. And then because they had lost almost all of their land and were not able to sustain their community with the resources they had, they moved to central New York onto Oneida land. And that was the creation of New Stockbridge. And then all the Haudenosaunee plus the Mohicans were forced out of New York State and eventually went into Ohio, Indiana, and then through a northern route, through Canada, and a southern route, they ended up in Wisconsin. That's Dr. Catherine M. Kidd, chair of the University Days Committee of Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Berkshire Community College. Berkshire Ali provided a month-long program called We're Still Here, Indigenous Peoples of the Northeast, that begins to fill a gap in our knowledge of the peoples, many of whom left the Northeast so many years ago. This is Julie Kopenheffer, your host for this program. Part one of We're Still Here, Indigenous Peoples of the Northeast podcast, provided a sampling of my interviews with some of the lecturers, artists, and walk leaders who participated in the University Days program. It can be found on WTBRFM.com, podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, we hear from the organizers who brought the month-long event of lectures, art exhibits, book talks, walks, and a concert into fruition. This includes Dr. Catherine Kidd and Michael Wilcox, members of the University Days Committee, who themselves led walks and book talks, each of whom credits the other for bringing the topic of indigenous peoples of the Northeast to the fore. They're steeped in the history of Native Americans and will share a portion of their knowledge with us. Later, we'll speak with other members of the University Day Committee and see how they brought their experience and energy to planning and executing the program with reward to the whole community. Later in this program, we'll hear from Barbara Lane, president of the board of directors of Berkshire Ollie. Welcome, Catherine M. Kidd. Do you mind if I call you Kate? Not at all. Please call me Kate. Let's start with how this topic came about. The topic is Indigenous Peoples of the Northeast, and our sort of second title is We Are Still Here. And the project has come about through a natural process of evolution, for lack of a better term, three years ago. Michael Wilcox taught a hiking class in the Berkshires, and there were so many questions when he was doing the hiking class about the Native Americans who had lived here, about their stewardship of the land, about the things that had been done by the European settler community in relation to the land. And those questions kept coming up during the hiking course. And so when the course was done, he said, I think it would be a good idea to teach a course on the history of Native Americans in this area. Michael taught his first class. Several Ali courses on the topic followed his, including yours. I taught a course in the spring session, and then Vivian Orlowski curated a course during summer one. 
So those were the three courses that for people who wanted to dive in before the individual event of university days, they could take those courses. So when did the planning start for the course itself? The planning started last summer in about July of 2021. So by the early fall, late September, we had a concept. We had secured a number of the speakers and the artists that we were going to work with. Almost a year in advance, you already had the plans in place. Yes. How did you choose the particular participants that you chose? Well, as there are almost 600 federally recognized tribal groups in the United States, and if you take this tribal groups that are recognized by states, it's well over 600 groups. And each of those groups has their own identity. And we hear a lot about the Diné Navajo people. We hear a lot about the Sioux. We hear a lot about Apache. They're just certain tribal groups that are still very active in people's imaginations. But in the Northeast, because most of the groups as groups had left our region by the late 18th century, so about 250 years ago, the knowledge of the general public about the tribal groups that are from this region is minimal. And they don't get a lot of publicity. But as with many other indigenous communities across the United States, there's been an incredible renaissance of language, of culture, of religious activity, of scholarship. And so we really wanted to focus on our region, one of the places that is most forgotten and where people are least aware that Indigenous communities still exist here. So, for example, there is not a single either state or federally recognized tribe in New Hampshire. There are only state-recognized tribes in Vermont. There are two tiny recognized tribes in Massachusetts, federally recognized the Wampanoags on the Gayhead Wampanoags on Martha's Vineyard and the Mashpee Wampanoags and then the Nipmucks, who are a state-recognized tribe. So the only federally recognized tribe is way out there on Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. Kate, can you identify the indigenous peoples who lived in the Northeast for us? The Mahican controlled all of the territories from the southern edge of Lake Champlain to the bottom of Manhattan, essentially, on both sides of the Hudson River. So they call themselves the people of the waters that are never still. So because the Hudson is a tidal river, that's very appropriate for them. And in pre-contact periods, that was their territory. In the 1740s, they were on the English side during the French and Indian War. They were on the, the American side during the American Revolution. The Mohawks, on the other hand, which is the, is the eastern door of the Haudenosaunee, almost always sided with the French. So that was a big 
difference. In one of those conflicts, the Mohicans lost the west side of the Hudson, and that pushed them a little further east, much more actively into the Housatonic River area. But by the 1730s, they were very squeezed. There were only, it's estimated, about 500 Mohicans left. And so in a conference in 1735, the Massachusetts Bay Colony offered them, in exchange for all of their property south of Stockbridge, six square miles in perpetuity. So they gave away 75% of their land to maintain 25% of it in perpetuity in the town of Stockbridge. And Stockbridge was a unique experiment. There were other praying towns in New England, towns that had a missionary to the Native American community, but that were exclusively Native American communities. Stockbridge was unique in that it, in, from the very beginning, included Native families. And the idea was that they would all learn from each other and cohabit in a positive way. Well, we know what happened with that. But in any case, that was the intention. So Indian Town was founded in 1736, 1737. The name was changed to Stockbridge in 1739. The Mohicans lived here until 1783. And then because they had lost almost all of their land and were not able to sustain their community with the resources they had. They moved to central New York onto Oneida land, and that was the creation of New Stockbridge. And then they all the Haudenosaunee plus the Mohicans were forced out of New York State and eventually went into Ohio, Indiana, and then through a northern route through Canada and a southern route, they ended up in Wisconsin. And so they've been in Wisconsin for a long time. The Stockbridge Muncie community is a recognized group. They're in Wisconsin and they are federally recognized. So they have a reservation there, they have a community there, but their homelands are here in the Hudson River Valley and in the Berkshires. And their last Eastern Council fire, the last formal part of the Mohicans was in Stockbridge. And then that Council fire was transferred to New Stockbridge in central New York in 1783 when the community left the Berkshires. What you've educated us to is that there are people of indigenous heritage here, but we don't know them and they are not recognized. Absolutely. In 1953, the federal government passed a tribal self-determination law so that was actually the first time since the 19th century that Native American tribes were able to govern themselves. Now, they had recommended constitutions by the 
Bureau of Indian Affairs. If they didn't use the recommended one, they had to get the one they created approved by the BIA. But was a significant improvement in terms of self-determination. Then there was further legislation giving Native Americans more rights at the time of the Civil Rights Act. And then in the late 1970s, during the Jimmy Carter administration, there was the Indian Child Welfare Act. For every one white child in the foster care system, there were 30 Native American children. Because they were removed from their families. They were removed from their families, exactly. Is that how genocide is institutionalized? Well, if you remove up to 80% of children from their families, that's one way of enforcing genocide. If you make it illegal for them, to engage in their religious practices, if you make it illegal for them to study in their native language, even if you don't tell them, you are killing their culture. And so since the 1960s, we've had major changes. But especially since those laws in the 1990s with the creation of the tribal colleges, with the legalizing of casinos on Indian territory, all of a sudden, the Native communities have educational resources. Their kids don't have to leave the reservation to get an education. And they have some money of their own to invest. They're not entirely dependent on the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so it's made a dramatic difference, and that has led to many more indigenous scholars. It means that people can openly talk about their religious practices and not worried about getting arrested or doing that. So those changes have meant that are so many more resources for learning about Native American communities than there were 25 or 30 years ago. Thank you, Kate. You've given us a lot to think about. And now let's turn to Michael Wilcox. Welcome. Michael F. Wilcox, you have been very involved as a Ali University Days committee member since the beginning of the Indigenous Peoples Project. And in fact, you're given credit for really the genesis of the idea because your classes that you did for Ali were so popular. Is that right? Yes and no. I know the origin of your compliment, which was Kate probably, but she is being a little modest because she was really the driving force behind the committee and the organization. And I guess I was the first Ali instructor to offer a discussion of indigenous culture and other matters relating to the indigenous people of this area. And that, Julie, came out of a course that I had conducted earlier for Ali, which was about local history. And the reason I, I did that was I do a lot of hiking around here. I've done a lot for many years. So but I was familiar with several different properties that had historical interest to me. And I began to study some of the history of those properties. So I shared them in a course called Walking Through History in the Berkshires. And that was very 
very well attended. And the one session that I gave about the Mohican Mohawk Trail, which is a walking trail up in North County, I mentioned where the name came from. And I talked a little bit about the Mohicans, who are the indigenous people around here. And they got so many questions about why are they not here anymore? Where are they? Why are they in Wisconsin? How did that happen? And it became very clear to me that people knew very little about the history of the what were then called the Stockbridge Indians. And I grew up in Stockbridge. As a young boy, I used to hear stories from my grandmother about the Stockbridge Indians. And the reason she knew so much about it is she was the local historian. So that was my original connection with the history of Stockbridge and the Stockbridge Indians. And and I as I came to realize that that people really wanted to know more, I suggested to Megan that I would be willing to teach a course. I say teach because that's what they call it, but I feel like I'm an instructor and I'm learning probably just as much, if not more, than the students do. And because I needed to do a lot of research in order to make the presentations. So you are not yourself Native American and your grandmother she had a trove of information, didn't she, that she made available for you. Were there any indigenous peoples living in Stockbridge during her day? Not that I'm aware of. I'm sure there are people still who are descendant from the original inhabitants because when the tribe officially left Stockbridge and moved to New York State in 1783, that was the official move of the tribe's headquarters or council fire, if you will, away from Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And they went to a town in Oneida country, which they named New Stockbridge, New York. And so that became the official headquarters of the tribe at that time. However, not all the members of the tribe left Stockbridge, Mass. So there were plenty of people who were here. And I should also pay tribute besides to my grandmother, who originally sparked my interest. I want to be sure to mention my brother, Rick. He was the police chief in Stockbridge for many years, and his hobby was studying the history of Stockbridge, and he continues to do that to this day. And he, I believe, knows probably more than any other living person about the history of Stockbridge in very great details. So I relied on him a lot for the information that I got about the town at the time of when the Ada people were still in residence here. And one of the things he pointed out to me was that after 1783, when the tribe no longer officially was here, there there was a doctor whose name was John Sargent. He was the son of the missionary John Sargent, and he kept very detailed medical records. And in his account books, he showed many incidents of him treating indigenous people. So. We know that there were a lot of indigenous people still in Stockbridge after the tribe officially left. And I'm sure that they left many descendants, some of whom are probably still here, to answer your question. But just to add to that, that the reason for that, I think that people who have studied the history of indigenous treatment by the federal government will realize that it was not to their best interest to identify themselves as indigenous. Not a good thing to do for many generations. So there may be people with indigenous blood in them who are not even aware of that because for many generations, it was people didn't want to be identified as indigenous because they were subject to mistreatment.
What elements of the indigenous culture most interest you? My interest is in the culture and what we, as a colonial people, could learn from that. I'm very interested in making the world a better place. I, I always have been, but the theme here for me is what can we learn from the indigenous culture that will help make this world a better place? And I think the answer is quite a lot because one of the things that I've become very aware of in my studies here is that the indigenous people of this era and really all of the Americans lived here for thousands of years and lived for the most part in harmony with each other and certainly in harmony with the natural world. So they considered themselves to be part of. It wasn't us against nature. It was, we are part of nature. That's their philosophy or their understanding. And they had developed sustainable agriculture. They had developed ways of living in this world, and they were successful for thousands of years. And then the colonists came in, and within a matter of hundreds of years, it pretty much destroyed the place. So it just seems to me that we would profit from listening to some of their wisdom. So we're looking at the climate change crisis, and we're looking at inequality of wealth, and we're looking at a lot of social ills and people who are expressing their discontent in, in unseemly ways that I think all stem back to the colonial culture. You're studying Abenaki. Who spoke it? Was it effectively snuffed out or are there surviving NATO speakers? Sure. For the benefit of those who are listening to this may not understand the relationship of the Abenaki people to us, to us being here in the Berkshires. The Algonquian people inhabited all of the east coast of what is now the United States, all the way down to Virginia, all the way up into Canada, and all the way as far east as there are people living where it was all Algonquian country. And the people who lived in this region are known as the Mohicans, and that is one of the dialects of the Algonquian language. So in other words, all of the people that I just mentioned all the way up and down the East Coast could understand each other because they all spoke the same language. However, like so many languages that are dispersed in large geographic areas, local dialects emerge and words change, are used differently. The vocabulary may not be identical. We encounter that right when we go to England and we encounter these funny words that they use, tailback, I should know that. And that's a, that's what their name for a traffic jam. It's a tailback. So, you know, and so the same kind of thing would happen here where people who lived hundreds of miles apart would develop a slightly different vocabulary, but essentially they could all talk to each other. And the Enoki people are the people who took to the north of us. So they were up and are. Have to be careful not to use the past tense about people who are still here. And that was one of the themes of Ali's program was we are still here. And that's something that they like to emphasize. Please don't talk about us in the past tense. We are still here. Anyway, the Abenaki dialect is a little bit different from the Mohican dialect. I don't know enough about the Mohican dialect to tell you the details, but I, the reason I'm studying Abenaki is that it was convenient for me to do so because they're nearby. Is there an, a reservation in Upper New York State? No, there there are no Abenaki reservations. There are some recognized tribes, but they're only recognized by the state of Vermont, not by the federal government. And not New York? Not in New York. Their territory was east of the of Lake Champlain and extended down almost into Massachusetts. So it was all of Vermont, some of New Hampshire, up into French Canada. That's their homeland. Or the Indocana, as they call it, our homeland. 
And there is a place in New York State called the Indaka Center, which is run by a, a Nabaki family. And, and they live in New York State because their ancestors were scattered as most tribes were when the colonists came through this area. The Indians pretty much dispersed anywhere they could find safety. Some of them went up into Canada. Some of them migrated from here into New York State. So uh, their ancestors came from, originally came from Vermont and ended up in New York State many generations ago. So they've been there for quite a long time, but their Indocumenta Center is actually on Mahican homeland over, over near Saratoga Springs. Are there existing native speakers now? My present teacher is named Jesse Bruchak. And at one point I had asked him, how many people are there who speak this language fluently? He thought about it for many, he said 20. Can you speak to the fact that that was a deliberate stifling of the indigenous languages by the government? Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. And it was true all over the country. It was federal law, actually, that, that any indigenous person who would be a criminal act to speak their own language, to practice their own religion, have ceremonies of any kind, that was absolutely illegal. Not just discouraged, but prosecuted. And so what the result was that people wanted to preserve their culture, had to do so in secret. Stories of indigenous people would continue to practice their rituals and their language and so on. And they would have a dance, let's say, in the, uh, the drum circle in the middle of the forest, and they would post lookouts. And if any colonists would be seen approaching, they would give a yell, and then people would start square dancing or something like that. So they would not be ident identified as doing indigenous things. So it was only in 1975 that the law was changed. Only recently, I think last year was the first time we have a new Secretary of the Interior for the first time, an indigenous person. And in the White House, there was a meeting to encourage the revitalization of indigenous languages. So the government has done a 180 here, and what was once illegal, forbidden, discouraged, in the strongest possible way, is now being encouraged. Languages reflect the cultural values of the people who speak it. And you mentioned the absence of gender differences in the way things are identified. So could you talk a little about that? Yeah, sure. Obviously, Malkin people were aware that there were genders, two, two plus genders. They were very tolerant of people who did not necessarily identify with either male or female, but they have a word for woman, they have a word for man, a word for wife, a word for husband, that sort of thing. But in the language pronouns, there is no gender. So there First person singular, Nia, that's me, Kia is you, and Agama is someone else, that person. So the third person has only a single pronoun, Agama is the word, and it means either he or she. There's no distinction between the genders there. And I think that reflects the culture. There's more to that, but I think it does reflect the culture that even though there were specific gender roles in the Algonquian culture and that women were responsible for agriculture, they were responsible for raising children, for creating clothing, and so on. And the men were responsible for hunting, for maintaining the forest, and that sort of thing. So there were clear gender roles, but they weren't considered superior to each other one to another in the English system or the colonial system, current European 
what we call Western culture, which is really colonial culture. The role of women for for many centuries was subservient to that of men. And that was just not the view of, of the indigenous people. They considered everyone equal. The women had a lot of power, actually, politically. Women elders of the tribe would be the ones who would select the leaders of the tribe. And women were very powerful. And language reveals the culture and supports the culture in respect to trees and other living objects. The attitude of the Algonquian culture is that we humans are just one of the animals. There are many animals. We're not the first ones here. Trees have been here longer than we have. Raccoons have been here longer than we have. And they'll probably be here longer than we will be. So we have a lot that we can learn from them. And by observing them and what they do and what they like and how they use other natural resources, we can learn. That's how they learned a lot of uh, medicinal plants. They saw animals using them for different reasons and they figured out what good they were. So the idea is that humans are just one of the animals. We're just part of nature. We're not, we don't control things. We are participants. And therefore, we need to be respectful of all that are around us. This ties in a little bit with view of the clash of cultures, really, when the colonists got here and started their big land grab, they wanted to own real estate here so that they could farm and mine and do whatever else they did. And the natives were saying, that's a strange way to look at things because how could you possibly actually own land? How could a person own land? Because land is like the air, like the water. It was given to us by the creator and shared by all living things. It's not something that that a human has the right to claim. And they viewed land, the territory that they had, which they called their whole land, they viewed that as the land that they were responsible for, not that they owned, but that they were responsible for caring for. And if they took good care of it, then they would take care of them because they will return natural resources, such as food and clothing and transportation. They would News that they made of birch bark or logs came from the land. You just did a discussion session on braiding sweet grass. And I think that the author goes into more detail just about that. Yeah, exactly. That's a wonderful book. And everyone who reads it says it's their favorite book. Robin Wall Kimmer, who's a professor in the SUNY system and is resident now over in Oneida country are a little bit west, and so her orientation is a little bit to the west of us, but it's still a very similar culture. And she talks a lot about the idea that trees are people and that the respect that, that is part of the culture. So yeah, she very eloquently describes a lot of the things that I've just been mentioning. How have people reacted to what you're teaching? Yeah, the reception has been very positive and gratifying. And again, back to one of your original questions of I maybe have been given credit for getting Ali on this track, which I'll accept that. Kudos there. But the truth is that the interest is out there, not just in Berkshire County, but I think that you see evidence of it growing throughout the country and the world, in fact, of indigenous people and their practices and learning from them. But I think that the consciousness everywhere is being raised of the value of indigenous wisdom. Thank you for speaking with me. On the Kagwe, that's the key for. Not a thing. In other words, you're welcome.
Ali members are 55 and older. Their efforts are proof positive that those 55 and older themselves are still here. Before we speak with other members of the University Days Committee, let's learn more about Berkshire Ali. And who better to tell us than Barbara Lane, president of the board? As the Ali board president, I'm president of an 18-member board. All our board members, all our committee members and committee chairs all serve as volunteers. We're very much a roll-up-your-sleeves working board. Also, as the board president, I work very closely with the chairs of each of our committees and with our relatively new executive director, Carol Ullman-Morton. You're a working board with a membership of 1,500 members and three paid staff. So how many programs are produced during the year by Ali? Yes, three individuals, if they work 24-7, could not possibly provide us with all the support we need. The day-to-day work at Ali really occurs at the committee level, and we do a tremendous amount of programming. First and foremost, I would say, are our five semesters of courses. We also have a Distinguished Speakers series that's now also being offered partly on Zoom and partly in person. We have an annual Ali art exhibit. We have outings to various cultural venues, wine tastings, etc., etc. We have our shared interest groups, and the list of SIGs is just growing and growing. Then we have our University Days program. Could you put the University Days program, the committee, its functioning, etc., in the context of all of the Ali offerings? Oh, certainly. Initially, we had a university day. We actually had to put an S at the end of day <laughs> to more adequately describe it. And it's just become this multi-day, multi-platform series of lectures, book readings, art exhibits, walks, musical performances, all around a single topic. The most recent one was the Indigenous Peoples of the Northeast, and it was just so well received. And this committee works year round to produce university days from one year to the next. And for the most part, all the offerings are available for free and not just to all the members, but for the entire community. What I always say to people when they're contemplating joining Ollie is that when you join Ollie, you're not just joining an organization, you're joining a community of like-minded people. And as hard as our dedicated volunteers work for the organization, what I always hear when I speak to Ollie people is how much the organization means to them in terms of remaining socially active, intellectually engaged. We all come to Ali with a lifetime's worth of professional experience and just life experience. So having the opportunity through Ali to give back is just so important to Ali members at our stage of life. Now, Catherine M. Kidd, chair of the University Days Committee, will introduce you to the other members of the committee, and I'll speak with them about how they contributed to the project and what impressions and insights they gained from it. Barbara Grill, 
is a new person on the committee. She came on because of this project and she wanted to take responsibility for the two art shows. Once we'd identified the artists and identified what we wanted to do, she was the lead person in terms of just following up, finding gallery space for us. You need insurance. You, there are all kinds of little things behind the scenes that are needed for art shows that are not needed for other kinds of events. So Barbara's been absolutely essential. Barbara Grill? You had a number of meetings with the three artists whose work formed the exhibit A Wick Again, Evoking Indigenous Stories and Landscapes. Would you tell me their names? Sure. So one was Cheryl Savageau. Cheryl is a very well-known poet and author, author of children's books. But she's also an artist. So she did quilting, which appeared in the exhibition, and a couple of watercolors and an assemblage, which was very interesting. And Rhonda Bessau was the other artist, and she is a very well-known beater. Her works are all done with beading and materials and clothing. The three artists are all of a Beneke descent. And they all live in New England. So Cheryl is from outside Boston. Rhonda is from New Hampshire, close to the Canadian border. And Judy is in a town called Essex, which is right outside of Burlington, Vermont. So there's some Canadian influence there, too. Is there a theme that came out of it as you perceived it? Yes. The title was it included the word storytelling and landscape of the project of the art exhibit. And I would say that practically all the pieces told a story to some degree. There was a story being told. In some of the works, it was quite involved story and some were simple. And many of the pieces were related to the land, to its living matter, plants, animals. Those were the two, I would say, those were the general themes, the land and living creatures and the botanicals as well, and the storytelling. And many were what we would call untold stories because, and I include myself, many of the visitors learned a lot. <laughs> they didn't know these untold stories. You were hosting one of the artists, Judy Dow. What did you learn in the process? It was wonderful getting to know Judy. Judy is a wonderful storyteller, and she's an incredibly talented, productive person, a great personality. And she opened my eyes, really, to the whole eugenic movement. I learned a great deal from her about that and about, uh, obviously, her art and how it relates to that. She was a teacher for many years. She's been doing basket making since she was 10 years old. And her basket weaving is just amazing. And then she told me a lot about this organization of which she is the current executive director the Dankana, I hope I'm pronouncing it, which is an organization that promotes the culture of the indigenous people. It's multi-generational. They work with women, with children, with families. It's an educational aspect to it to, as well. And this organization of which she is the executive director, they strive to 
to preserve and maintain the cultural tradition. So it might be beading, it might be basketry, it might be gardening and both. So I learned a lot about that organization. Um, and, and I could see how her artwork is part of all of that. For two other artists, did you have a chance to interact with them? Not in person, but I did get to know them through the Zooms. So Rhonda does the most amazing work with beads. She had two purses there. One had 10,000 glass beads in it for the portrait of the face. I, I Just unbelievable. And her little tiny uh, purses, were they, they were just very beautiful. I think what was really wonderful about this exhibit is, aside from the educational part of it, because you really did learn a lot through the storytelling, was the variety of media that we had. So we had clothing. And we had paint, we had watercolors, and we had tapestries, and we had gourds and baskets. It was just a very eclectic and very, I think, visually beautiful exhibit. And it was great working with Shakespeare and Company, I have to say. You were also involved with the Niana Lafond exhibit. How were you involved with that one? And can you compare the two exhibits? Yeah, I was more involved with the one at Shakespeare. Diana Lafon. her exhibition was at the Lichtenstein Gallery in Pittsfield. She actually delivered all her works, 50 portraits, and three of us were there to set it up. So we set it up. Of course, I was part of the opening reception and the gallery talk that she gave. She's been an artist for many years, but this is a relatively new project. Families reach out to her having had a member of their family either missing or murdered and ask her to do a portrait for a missing and murdered indigenous women. She does a portrait of each person that a family comes to her and asks. She doesn't turn anyone down. She also does not charge anything for, the, for these portraits. And she has done 80 portraits thus far. 50 were in the exhibit. And in fact, she said it was the largest exhibit that she's had so far. It's a very serious, tragic subject. It's a very visually powerful exhibition. And of course, her talk was extremely powerful too, because what has motivated her to do these paintings and what doing these paintings has done for her in healing, because she has suffered some traumatic things in her life. People were just shocked at the enormity of this tragic crisis. It's not just in one area, it's national. The, it's just so horrifying that people were just very touched, very touched. To know it's contemporary. Yes, and ongoing. Now, in contrast, the exhibition at Shakespeare and Company, while some of the stories are very compelling, and very, very powerful, like the art objects that had to do with the eugenics survey, for sure. But other than that, many of them were just beautiful pieces of artwork. The quilts were gorgeous, and the two watercolors that Cheryl did were very beautiful. The painted boards that, that Judy did were delightful to look at. And the baskets, were it was an easier subject to deal with outside of the eugenics part of it, I would say. Thank you, Barbara. Vivian Orlowski 
came on initially as an ex-officio member of the team. She works for Housatonic Heritage. Housatonic Heritage is part of the National Park Service. And about seven or eight years ago, they decided they wanted to put more energy and some more money into things related to the Native American community. And Vivian is incredibly well-connected with people in the Native plant community, in the sustainable agriculture community, just about anybody out here who works on environmental issues and sustainable ag, Vivian knows them. Housatonic Heritage was one of our partners from the very beginning. And then having Vivian come on board and curate a class was just an extra bonus. And she's been just a terrific partner for us. The multitude of Housatonic Heritage activities unfortunately left Vivian without time to speak with me. Ellen Poivier, she's fabulous in terms of thinking about marketing. She's on the Ollie board, and she also is fearless about asking people to volunteer. <laughs> and so she's one of the people on the committee who helps bring other people into the mix. So she's been really important for us. My name is Ellen Poivier. Right now, I'm on the Ollie board. I'm co-chair of the membership committee for OLLI. I co-chair one of the shared interest groups, the Contemporary Gender SIG group. I just love being part of the organization. I've made some of my best friends as a result of being part of OLLI. So I highly recommend it for anyone that hasn't yet joined. You've been on the University Day Committee for several years. Exactly. This one is by far our most ambitious project. It's been a great experience, and the people on the committee have been wonderful to work with. So it's a pleasure. As Ollie is all about volunteers, none of us get paid for any of this, so you have to enjoy it if you're going to do it. <laughs> That's my attitude. Absolutely. So what was your role on the committee? Kate had asked me if I would help with marketing because I have a background in sales and marketing. Were you at many of the Indigenous people's lectures and events? I was very pleased to have been at both of the art exhibits, and I had the pleasure of meeting both Judy Dow as well as Nayan Lafond and helping to dismantle uh, the project that was at the Lichtenstein. I also was at the concert. That was amazing as well. And I facilitated one of the lectures, the one with Professor Margaret Bruchak, which was great. The activities were very well received. Can you tell me from what you did participate in? What did you get from it? Were your eyes open? Your mind changed? How did you receive it? All of the above. I'm embarrassed to say that having grown up in New York City and thinking that I had a, a good education, which on many levels I did, I was absolutely floored by how much I did not know of the indigenous history, how much I was unaware having grown up in New York and even living here in Massachusetts how much of Native American history was all around me that I really had no idea about. And even having learned, thanks to some of our indigenous speakers, about some of the plants that are in my backyard, <laughs> or herbs and other plants that I could have eaten, and just to be aware of that. I also, on the dark side, I, as I say, 
had attended and was part of the dismantling of the project that Nayana Lafond had done about murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. I was absolutely unaware of that project, and I was unaware to what extent that was an issue. Talk about mind blown. It was a very powerful exhibit, and it really left a, uh, an imprint on me. As did the other exhibit as well, as did the lectures that I listened to, because even just learning, thanks to courses I had attended prior to the project, I had attended two of Michael Wilcox's courses, I think it was two, maybe even been more, on Indigenous people, and learned a lot of the history through that course. And then Kate had done another course about the Dawes Law and Suffice it to say that the people of the United States have a lot to learn about our own history and the fact that we may not be as aware of both sides of the issue as we should be, and issue many issues at that. But even just learning about the Indian boarding schools, that is not a part of history that I'm proud of, even if I wasn't around for much of it, but it definitely made an impression on me. What kind of feedback did you hear from people who attended? Extremely positive. Everyone that I spoke to was blown away by the program, regardless of the particular part of the project or parts of the project they attended. And because, as I mentioned, I'm co-chair of the membership committee, what was especially heartening to me was having met people at the Paul Henry's concert who told me that not only were they there because they had heard about the project and had come as a result, but that they had signed up for Ali because they had attended not only the concert, but some of our other programs related to the project. So the fact, I think, that we had programs that were open to the public and that were free to the public made a big difference and exposed Ali and our partners, of course, to people who might not have noticed us before. I guess I would just say that for all the hard work that was involved, and there was a lot of hard work involved, it was a very rewarding experience, and it was enlightening, and it was not always positive in the sense that I was happy to learn some of the things I learned, but I was grateful to be made aware of uh, the two sides of our history as it concerns Indigenous peoples. And I know that it will affect the way I go forward in the world. And I think that was very important. Thank you, Ellen Poibier. Now that we have some idea of the scope and substance of the University Days project, we're still here, Indigenous Peoples of the Northeast. I'd like to give the chairman of the committee, Kate Kidd, the last words. You've given an awful lot to this Indigenous Peoples Project. What have you received from this? Oh, I think I've received more than I've given. I'm a teacher. I'm a retired college professor. My field was international affairs, so cross-cultural things is what I'm interested in. So I feel like my background in international affairs provided me with some of the tools I needed for doing this work. But I would say first, 
I've met some absolutely amazing people, and that's been a joy. I've also been able to be with a younger generation of Native American scholars and artists and leaders, how all of these policy changes that got rolled out when they were young has really empowered them. It's still a community that needs many more leaders, that needs many more resources, but you can see tremendous change. And so that was exciting. But I also think that with all the reading <laughs> that I've done, trying to identify books, identifying scholars, reading their scholarly articles and books, I've gained a lot of knowledge of what's happened and uh, happened historically in this particular region, which is important. And seeing it through a Native American lens rather than through the European lens, which is what I was taught when I was in school all the way through university. I think the third thing that's been really important for me is that I have really come to see some of the deep differences between a Native American approach to life, a Native American approach to the land, a Native American approach to relationships, a Native American sense of responsibility that is so different from a European approach, a colonial settler approach. And I feel like I've just begun to scratch the surface of those differences, but it was fun in the Braiding Sweetgrass discussion. I asked some of the other participants, you know, how do you see the world differently since you read this book? People immediately put up their hands and had examples of how they interact with nature, how they see the bigger issues of climate change, of sustainable agriculture. They just see the world differently from reading that book. And that was really exciting. Thank you, Katie. Congratulations to you and all of the members of the committee and to Ali for providing the forum for this. Yes, it, it's been a joy. This is Julie Copenheffer, your host and the producer of this program. Thank you to Dr. Catherine M. Kidd, Michael Forbes Wilcox, Barbara Lane, Ellen Poibier, and Barbara Grill for speaking with me. Thank you also to WTBRFM 89.7 Pittsfield, Mass., and Berkshire Ali. The music you've heard throughout this program is used by permission from Native American flute maker and flute player Hawk Henrys. On the Berkshire Ali YouTube channel, you can hear his concert that Ellen Poibier mentioned, along with lectures from other of the events. You can access more information on the topics addressed at berkshireali.org. That's berkshireolli.org. Look under the University 2022 tab. You can find more information in the books, articles, and albums of the participants referenced there. The 
Opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR, Berkshire Ali, the production team, or the University Days Committee.